Chapter Thirteen of Mountaineering in the Sierra Nevada by Clarence King. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirteen Mount Whitney. There lay between Carson and Mount Whitney a ride of two hundred and eighty miles along the east base of the Sierra. Stage driving, like other exact professions, gathers among its followers certain types of men and manners either by some mode of natural selection, or else after a Darwinian way developing one set of traits to the exclusion of others. However interesting it might be to investigate the molding power of whip and reins, or to discover what measure of coachman there is latent in every one of us, it cannot be questioned that the characters of drivers do resemble one another in surprising degree, that ostentatious silence and self-contained way of ignoring one's presence on the box for the first half hour, the tragicomic, just audible undertone in which they remonstrate with the swing team, and such single refrain of obsolete song as they drone and drone a hundred times, may be observed on every coach from San Diego to Montana. So I found it natural enough that the driver, my sole companion from Carson to Aurora, should sit for the first hour in a silence etiquette forbade me to violate. His team, by strict attention to their duties, must have left his mind quite free, and I saw symptoms of suppressed social ability within forty miles of our departure. The nine-mile house, if my memory serves, was his landmark for taciturnity, for soon after passing it, he began to skirmish along a sort of picket line of conversation. To the wheel mares he remarked, Hot gals, ain't it, though? And to his off-leader, who strained wild eyes in every direction for something to become excited about, Look at him, Dixie, wouldn't you like a rabbit to shy at? With a true driver's pride in reading men, he scanned me from boots to barometer, and at last, to my immense delight, said, with the air of throwing his hat into a ring, What mountain was you going down to measure? Had he inquired after my grandfather by his first name, I could not have been more surprised. At once I told him the plain truth, and waited for further developments. But like an indifferent shot who drives centers on a first trial, he proposed not to endanger his reputation for infallibility by other ventures, and withdrew again to that conspicuous stupidity which coachmen and Buddhists alike delight in. Left to myself, I spent hours in looking out over the desert and up along that bold front of Sierra which rose on our right from the sage plains of Carson Valley up through ramparts of pine land to summits of rock and ravines with shrunken snowbanks. So as far as Aurora, I remember little worth describing. Sierras, or outlying volcanic foothills, bound the west. About our road are desert plains and rolling sage-clad hills, fresh light olive at this June season, and softly sloping in long glacis down to wide impressive levels. Green valleys and cultivated farms margin the Carson and Walker rivers, Sierras are not lofty enough to be grand, desert too gentle and overspread with sage to be terrible, yet the pale high key of all its colors, 
and singular aerial brilliancy lend an otherwise dreary enough picture the charm as i once before said of watercolor drawings there is no perspective under this fierce white light in midday intensely sharp reflections glare from hill and valley except where the shadow of passing clouds spreads cool and blue over olive slopes alas for aurora once so active and bustling with silver mines and its almost daily murder twenty-six whiskey hells and two vigilance committees grace those days of prosperity and mirthful gallows of stock board and the gay delirium of speculation now her sad streets are lined with closed doors a painful silence broods over quartz mills and through the whole deserted town one perceives that melancholy security of human life which is hereabouts one of the pathetic symptoms of bankruptcy the boys have gone off to merrily shoot one another somewhere else leaving poor aurora in the hands of a sort of coroner's jury who gather nightly at the one saloon and hold dreary inquest over departed enterprise my landlord's tread echoed through a large empty hotel and when i responded to his call for lunch the silentest of girls became medium between me and a chinaman who gazed sad-eyed through his kitchen door as in pity for one who must choose between starving and his own cookery but i have always felt it unpardonable egotism for a traveller to force the reader into sharing with him the inevitable miseries of roadside food whatever merit there may be in locking this prandial grief fast from public view i feel myself entitled to in a high degree for i told it in my power to describe the most revolting cuisine on the planet and yet i refrain from aurora my road still parallel with the mountains though now hidden from them by banks of volcanic hills climbed a long wearisome slope from whose summit a glorious panorama of snowy sierras lay before us from our feet steep declivities sloped two thousand feet to the level of a wide desert basin bounded upon the west by long ranks of high white peaks and otherwise walled in by chains of volcanic hills smooth with dull sage flanks and yet varied here and there by outcropping formations of eruptive rocks and dusky cedar forests just at the sierra foot surrounded by bare gray volcanoes and reaches of ashen plain lies mono lake a broad oval darkened along its farther shore by reflecting the shadowed mountains and pale tranquil blue where among light desert levels it mirrors the silken softness of sky and cloud flocks of pelicans high against the sky floated in slow wheeling flight reflecting the sun from white wings and turning were lost in the blue to gleam out again like flakes of snow the eye ranges over strange forbidding hill forms and leagues of desert from which no familiarity can ever banish suggestions of death traced along boundary hills straight terraces of an ancient beach indicate former water levels and afar in the sierra great empty gorges glacier burnished and moraine flanked lead up to an amphitheater of rock once white with neve i recognize the old familiar summits mount ritter 
Lyell, Dana, and that firm peak with tightened strength and brow so square and solid, it seems altogether natural we should have named it for California's statesman, John Connus. We rumbled downhill and out upon the desert, plodding until evening through sand and over rocky, cedar-wooded spurs, at last crossing adobe meadows where were settlements and a herd of Spanish cattle which had escaped the drought of California, and now marched, northward bound, for Montana. Frowning volcanic hills flanked our road as evening wore on, lifting dark forms against a sky singularly pale and luminous. Afar, we caught glimpses of the dark-swelling Sierra wave thrusting up star-neighboring peaks and then descending into hollows among lava mounds and found ourselves completely shut in. A night at the hot springs of Partswick was notably free from anything which may be recounted. Morning found me waiting alone on the hotel veranda, and I suppose the luxuries of the establishment must have left a stamp of melancholy upon my face, for the little solemn driver who drew up his vehicle at the door said in a tone of condolence, The hearse is ready. Stages, drivers, and teams had been successively worse as I journeyed southward. This little old specimen, by whose side I sat from Partswick to Independence, ought to be accepted, and I should neglect a duty were I not to portray one, at least, of his traits. He was a musical old fellow, and given to chanting in low tones songs, sometimes pathetic, often sentimental, but in every case preserved by him in most fragmentary recollection. Such singing suffered, too, from the necessary and frequent interruption of driving. The same breath, quavering and cracked melody, and tossing some neatly rounded oath or horse phrase at off or near Wheeler, catching up and ended the refrain again in time to satisfy his musical requirements. All the morning he had warned me most impressively to count myself favored if a certain bridge over Bishop's Creek should not sink under us and cast me upon wild waters. Rightly estimating my friend, I was not surprised when we reached the spot to find a good solid structure bridging a narrow creek not more than four feet deep. As we rolled on down Owens Valley, he sang, chatted, and drove, in a manner which showed him capable of three distinct yet simultaneous mental processes. I follow his words as nearly as memory serves. That creek, sir, was six feet deep. What the devil are you shying at, you cursed mustang? Come up onto that little green grave. Yes, seven feet we fell in. Swimming wouldn't have saved us. You, Bailey, what are you doing on on the flowing veil. And what's more, we couldn't have crawled up that bank. No how. My own dear Lily Dale. And you'd kick over them traces, would you? Keep your doggone neck up snub against that collar and take that. We'd drown, sir. Drowned, sure as thunder. In the place where the violets grow. Desert hills and low mountain gateways, opening views of vast sterile plains no longer form our eastern outlook. The White Mountains, a lofty, barren chain vying with the Sierras in altitude, 
rose in splendid rank and stretched southeast parallel with the great range. Down the broad intermediate trough flows Owens River, alternately through expanses of natural meadow and desolate reaches of sage. The Sierra, as we traveled southward, grew bolder and bolder, strong granite spurs plunging steeply down to the desert. Above, the mountain sculpture grew grander and grander until forms wild and rugged as the Alps stretched on in dense ranks as far as the eye could reach. More and more, the granite came out in all its strength. Less and less, soil covered the slopes. Groves of pine became rarer, and sharp, rugged buttresses advanced boldly to the plain. Here and there, a canyon gate between rough granite pyramids and flanked by huge moraines opened its savage gallery back among peaks. Even around summits there was but little snow, and the streams which at short intervals flowed from the mountain foot, traversing the plains, were sunken far below their ordinary volume. The mountain forms and mode of sculpture of the opposite ranges are altogether different. The white and inyo chains, formed chiefly of uplifted sedimentary beds, are largely covered with soil, and wherever the solid rock is exposed, its easily traced strata plains and soft wooded surface combined in producing a general aspect of breadth and smoothness, while the Sierra, here more than anywhere else, hold up a front of solid stone, carved into the most intricate and highly ornamental forms. Vast aguilles, trim from summit to base with a line of slender minarets, huge broad domes, deeply fluted and surmounted with tall obelisks, and everywhere the greatest profusion of bristling points. From the base of each range, a long sloping talus descends gently to the river, and here and there, bursting up through Sierra foothills, rise the red and black forms of recent volcanoes, as regular and barren as if cooled but yesterday. I had reason for not regretting my departure from the Inyo house at Independence next morning before sunrise, and when a young woman in an elaborate brown calico, copied evidently from some imperial evening toilet, pertly demanded my place by the driver, adding that she was not one of the inside kind. I willingly yielded and made myself contented on the back seat alone. Presently, however, a companion came to me in the person of a middle-aged Spanish donna, clad altogether in black, with a shawl worn over her head after the manner of a mantilla. When it began to rain violently, and beat upon that brown calico, I made bold to offer the young woman my sheltered place, but she gaily declined, averring herself not made of sugar. So the Donna and I shared my great coat across our laps, and established relations of civility, though she spoke no English, and I only that little Spanish, so much more embarrassing than none. In her smile, in her large, soft eyes, and that tinge of Castilian blood which shone red-warm through olive cheek, I saw the signs of a race blessed with sturdier health than ours, with snowy hair growing low on a massive forehead, 
and just a glimpse now and then of large gold beads through a white handkerchief about her throat, she seemed to me a charming picture, though perhaps her fine looks gained something by contrasting with the sickly girl in front, whose pallor and cough could have not meant less than the pre-tubercular state. Clouds covered the mountains on either hand, leaving me only ranches and people to observe. May I be forgiven, if I am wrong, in accounting for the late improvement of political tone in Tuolme by the presence here of so large a share of her most degraded citizens, people whose faces and dress and life and manners are sadder than any possibilities held up to us by Darwin. My long ride ended in a few hours at Lone Pine, where from the hotel window I watched a dark blue mass of storm which covered and veiled the region where I knew my goal, the Whitney summit, must stand. For two days, storm curtains hung low about Sierra Base, their vapor banks, dark with fringes of shower, at times drifted out over Lone Pine and quenched a thirsty earth. On the third afternoon, blue sky shone through rifts overhead, and now and then a single peak, dashed with broken sunshine, rose for a moment over rolling clouds which swelled above it, again like huge billows. About an hour before sunset, the storm began rapidly to sink into level fold, over which, in clear yellow light, emerged cloud-compelling peaks. The liberated sun poured down shafts of light, piercing the mist which now in locks of gold and gray blew about the mountain heads in wonderful splendor. How deep and solemn a blue filled the canyon depths! What passion of light glowed around the summits! With delight I watched them one after another, fading till only the sharp, terrible crest of Whitney, still red with reflected light from the long, sunken sun, showed bright and glorious above the whole Sierra. Upon observing the topography, I saw that one bold spur advanced from Mount Whitney to the plain. On either side of it, profound canyons opened back to the summit. I remembered the impossibility of making a climb up those northern precipices, and at once chose the more southern gorge. Next morning, we set out on horseback for the mountain base, twelve miles across plains and through an outlying range of hills. My companion for the trip was Paul Pinson, as tough and plucky a mountaineer as France ever sent us, who consented readily to follow me. Jose, the mild-mannered and grinning Mexican boy who rode with us, was to remain in care of our animals at the foothills where we made the climb. I left a green barometer to be observed at Lone Pine and carried my short high-mountain instrument by the same excellent maker. Gauzy mists again enveloped the Sierra, leaving us free minds to enjoy a ride of which the very first mile supplied me food for days of thought. The American residents of Lone Pine outskirts live in a homeless fashion. Sullen, almost arrogant neglect stares out from the open doors. 
there is no attempt at grace no memory of comfort no suggested hope for improvement not so the spanish homes their low adobe wide-roofed cabins neatly enclosed with even basketwork fence and lining hedge of blooming hollyhock we stopped to bow good morning to my friend and stage companion the donna she sat in the threshold of her open door sewing beyond her stretched a bare floor clean and white the few chairs the table spread with snowy linen everything shone with an air of religious spotlessness symmetry reigned in the precise well-kept garden arranged in rows of pepper plants and crisp heads of vernal lettuce i longed for a painter to catch her brilliant smile and surround her on canvas as she was here with order and dignity the same plain black dress clad her heavy ample figure and about the neck heavy barbaric gold beads served again as collar under low eaves above her and quite around the house hung in triple row festoons of flaming red peppers in delicious contrast with the rich adobe gray it was a study of order and true womanly repose fitted to cheer us and a grouping of such splendid color as might tempt a painter to cross the world a little farther on we passed an indian ranchero where several willow wickiups were built upon the bank of a cold brook half-naked children played about here and there a few old squaws bustled at household work but nearly all lay outstretched dozing a sort of tattered brilliancy characterized the place gay high-colored squalor reigned there seemed hardly more lack of thrift or sense of decorum than in the american ranches yet somehow the latter send a stab of horror through one while this quaint indolence and picturesque neglect seem aptly contrived to set off the indian genius for loafing and leave you with a sort of aesthetic satisfaction rather than the sorrow their half-development should properly evoke leaving all this behind us our road led westward across a long sage slope entering a narrow tortuous pass through a low range of outlying granite hills strangely weathered forms towered on either side their bare brown surface contrasting pleasantly with the vivid ribbon of willows which wove a green and silver cover over swift water the granite was riven with innumerable cracks showing here and there a strong tendency to concentric forms and i judged the immense spheroidal boulders which lay on all sides piled one upon another to be the kernels or nuclei of larger masses quickly crossing this ridge we came out upon the true sierra foot slope a broad inclined plain stretching north and south as far as we could see directly in front of us rose the rugged form of mount whitney spur a single mass of granite rough hewn and darkened with coniferous groves the summits were lost in a cloud of almost indigo hue putting our horses at a trot we quickly ascended the glacis and at the very foot of the rocks dismounted and made up our packs jose with the horses left us 
and went back half a mile to a mountain ranch where he was to await our return. And presently Pinson and I, with heavy burdens upon our backs, began slowly to work our way up the granite spur and toward the great canyon. An hour's climb brought us around upon the south wall of our spur and about a thousand feet above a stream which dashed and leaped along the canyon bottom through wild ravines and over granite bluffs. Our slope was a rugged rock face, giving foothold here and there to pine and juniper trees, but for the greater part bare and bold. Far above, at an elevation of 10,000 feet, a dark grove of alpine pines gathered in the canyon bed. Thither we bent our steps, edging from cleft to cleft, making constant, though insignificant, progress. At length our walk became so wild and deeply cut with side canyons, we found it impossible to follow it longer, and descended carefully to the bottom. Almost immediately, with heavy wind gusts and sound as of torrents, a storm broke upon us, darkening the air and drenching us to the skin. The three hours we toiled up over rocks, through dripping willow brooks and among trains of debris, were not noticeable for their cheerfulness. The storm had ceased, but it was evening when, wet and exhausted, we at length reached the alpine grove and threw ourselves down for rest under a huge overhanging rock which offered its shelter for our bivouac. Logs, soon brought in by Pinson, were kindled. The hot blaze seemed pleasant to us, though I cannot claim to have enjoyed those two hours spent in turning round and round before it while steaming and drying. But the broiled beef, the toast, and those generous cups of tea to which we devoted the hour between ten and eleven were quite satisfactory. So, too, was the pleasant chat, till midnight warned us to roll up in overcoats and close our eyes to the fire, to the dark, somber grove, and far stars crowding the now cloudless heavens. The sun arose and shone on us while we breakfasted. Through all the visible sky not a cloud could be seen, and thanks to yesterday's rain, the air was of crystal purity. Into it, the granite summits above us projected forms of sunlit gray. Up the glacier valley above camp we slowly tramped through a forest of noble Pinus flexilis, the trunks of bright sienna contrasting richly with deep bronze foliage. Minor flutings of a medial moraine offered gentle grade and agreeable footing for a mile and more, after which, by degrees, the woods gave way to a wide-open amphitheater surrounded with cliffs. I can never enter one of these great hollow mountain chambers without a pause. There is a grandeur in spaciousness which expand and fit the mind for yet larger sensations when you shall stand on the height above. Velvet of alpine sward, edging an icy brooklet by whose margin we sat down, reached to the right and left, far enough to spread a narrow foreground over which we saw a chain of peaks swelling from either side toward our amphitheater's head, where, springing splendidly over them all, stood the sharp form of Whitney. 
precipices white with light and snow fields of incandescent brilliance group themselves along walls and slopes all around us in wild huge heaps lay wreck of glacier and avalanche we started again passing the last two and began to climb painfully up loose debris and lodged blocks of the north wall from here to the very foot of that granite pyramid which crowns the mountain we found neither difficulty nor danger only a long tedious climb overfooting which from time to time gave way provokingly by this time mist floated around the brow of mount whitney forming a gray helmet from which now and then the wind blew out long waving plumes after a brief rest we began to scale the southeast ridge climbing from rock to rock and making our way up steep fields of soft snow precipices sharp and severe fell away to east and west of us but the rough pile above still afforded away we had to use extreme caution for many blocks hung ready to fall at a touch and the snow where we were forced to work up it often gave way threatening to hurl us down into cavernous hollows when within a hundred feet of the top i suddenly fell through but supporting myself by my arms looked down into a grotto of rock and ice and out through a sort of window over the western bluffs and down thousands of feet to the faraway valley of the kern i carefully and slowly worked my body out and crept on hands and knees up over a steep and treacherous ice crest where a slide would have swept me over a brink of the southern precipice we kept to the granite as much as possible pinson taking one train of blocks and i another above us but thirty feet rose a crest beyond which we saw nothing i dared not think of the summit till we stood there and mount whitney was under our feet close beside us a small mound of rock was piled upon the peak and solidly built into it an indian arrow shaft pointing due west i climbed out to the southwest brink and looking down could see that fatal precipice which had prevented me seven years before i strained my eyes beyond but already dense impenetrable clouds had closed us in on the whole this climb was far less dangerous than i had reason to hope only at the very crest where ice and rock are thrown together insecurely did we encounter any very trying work the utter unreliableness of that honeycomb and cavernous cliff was rather uncomfortable and might at any moment give the death fall to one who had not coolness and muscular power at instant command i hung my barometer from the mound of our indian predecessor nor did i grudge his hunter pride the honor of first finding that one pathway to the summit of the united states fifteen thousand feet above two oceans while we lunched i engraved pinson's and my name upon a half dollar and placed it in a hollow of the crest clouds still hung motionless over us but in half an hour a west wind drew across lifting the heavy vapors along with it light poured in 
reddening the clouds which soon rolled away opening a grand view of the western sierra ridge and of the whole system of the kern only here and there could blue sky be seen but fortunately the sun streamed through one of these windows in the storm lighting up splendidly the snowy rank from Kawea to Mount Brewer. There they rose, as of old, firm and solid, even the great snow fields, though somewhat shrunken, lay as they had seven years before. I saw the peaks and passes and amphitheaters dear old Cotter and I had climbed, even that Mount Brewer pass where we looked back over the pathway of our dangers and up with regretful hearts to the very rock on which I sat. Deep below flowed the kern, its hundred snow-fed branches gleaming out amid rock and ice, or traced far away in the great glacier trough by dark lines of pine. There, only twelve miles northwest, stretched that ragged divide where Cotter and I came down the precipice with our rope. Beyond, into the vague blue of King's Canyon, sloped the ice and rock of Mount Brewer Wall. Somber storm clouds and their even gloomier shadows darkened the northern sea of peaks. Only a few slant bars of sudden light flashed in upon purple granite and fields of ice. The rocky tower of Mount Tyndall, thrust up through rolling billows, caught for a moment the full light and then sank into darkness and mist. When all else was buried in cloud, we watched the great west range. Weird and strange, it seemed shaded by some dark eclipse. Here and there, through its gaps and passes, serpent-like streams of mist floated in and crept slowly down the canyons of the hither slope, then all along the crest, torn and rushing spray of clouds whirled about the peaks, and in a moment, a vast gray wave reared high and broke, overwhelming all. Just for a moment, every trace of vapor cleared away from the east, unveiling for the first time spurs and gorges and plains. I crept to a brink and looked down into the Whitney Canyon, which was crowded with light. Great scarred and ice-hewn precipices reached down 4,000 feet, curving together like a ship and holding in their granite bed a thread of brook, the small sapphire gems of alpine lake, bronze dots of pine, and here and there a fine enameling of snow. Beyond and below lay Owens Valley, walled in by the barren Inyo chain, and afar, under a pale sad sky, lengthened leagues and leagues of lifeless desert. The storm had even swept across Kern Canyon and dashed high against the peaks north and south of us. A few sharp needles and spikes struggled above it for a moment, but it rolled over them and rushed in torrents down the desert slope, burying everything in a dark, swift cloud. We hastened to pack up our barometer and descend. A little way down the ice crust gave way under Pinson, but he saved himself and we hurried on, reaching safely the cliff base, leaving all dangerous ground above us. So dense was the cloud, we could not see a hundred feet, but tramped gaily down the rocks and sand, 
feeling quite assured of our direction until suddenly we came upon the brink of a precipice and strained our eyes off into the mist. I threw a stone over and listened in vain for the sound of its fall. Pinson and I both thought we had deviated too far to the north and were on the brink of Whitney Canyon, so we turned in the opposite direction, thinking to cross the ridge, entering our old amphitheater, but in a few moments we again found ourselves upon the verge. This time a stone we threw over, answered with a faint dull crash from five hundred feet below. We were evidently upon a narrow blade. I remembered no such place and sat down to carefully recall every detail of topography. At last I concluded that we had either strayed down upon the Kern side or were on one of the cliffs overhanging the head of our true amphitheater. Feeling the necessity of keeping cool, I determined to ascend to the foot of the snow and search for our tracks. So we slowly climbed up there again and took a new start. By this time, the wind howled fiercely, bearing a chill from snow crystals and sleet. We hurried on before it, and after one or two vain attempts, succeeded in finding our old trail down the amphitheater slope, descending very rapidly to its floor. From here, an exhausting tramp of five hours through the pine forest to our camp, and on down the rough, wearying slopes of the lower canyon, brought us to the plain where Jose and the horses awaited us. From Lone Pine that evening, and from the open carriage in which I rode northward to Independence, I constantly looked back and up into the storm, hoping to catch one more glimpse of Mount Whitney, but all the range lay submerged in dark rolling cloud, from which now and then a sullen mutter of thunder reverberated. For years, our chief, Professor Whitney, has made brave campaigns into the unknown realm of nature. Against low prejudice and dull indifference, he has led the survey of California onward to success. There stand for him two monuments, one a great report made by his own hand, another the loftiest peak in the Union, begun for him in the planet's youth and sculptured of enduring granite by the slow hand of time. End of chapter 13 Mount Whitney